0: And welcome everyone, thanks again. For those of you who have joined us before and are joining us again, thank you. And for uh, all the new folks, thanks for uh, joining us in this series. We have yet another awesome uh, speaker today. And uh, Mike, uh, you know, is a mechanical engineer turned uh, CFO. We're gonna dig into how that happened in a little bit, but uh, he has over the last 20 years uh, been in a variety of uh, finance roles, uh, you know, Started with life sciences, but then at least for the last dozen years in uh, high growth technology companies, uh, all companies you've probably heard of, DocuSign, DoorDash, uh, most recently Gusto, and, uh, you know, fantastic career that I'm looking forward to diving in uh, to, uh, in terms of learning more about the journey. And uh, Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's interesting looking at the,
1: the background. Um, it's changed a lot. I think that was on my LinkedIn and it's been like that, I think for maybe 10 years, but I just, just looking at it now, I think I've definitely, I've raised well over a billion. And, uh, once DoorDash goes public today, I think it's probably closer to 70 billion in, or more in a uh, value that the,
0: the, the last three companies that I've been involved with. Um, That's awesome. No, yeah. that, and, and That's- congrats on DoorDash going public today. Uh, you know, you played a part in that and I'm assuming you are, absolutely not keeping an eye on the stock price, right? Doesn't, yeah. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but no, I'm excited. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, and, and
1: thanks to everyone for joining.
0: Awesome. So let's just uh, dive right in, right? So uh, as I mentioned, you're a mechanical engineer turned uh, CFO. So tell us about how that happened. Like, you, obviously, you were going down a path, and along the way, uh, you decided, uh, you know, that's not the path for me, and... and I would rather go help build businesses. So uh, I'd love to know more about how that happened.
1: Yeah, so I, I actually don't know how I became an engineer when I look back. I mean, I know, you know tactically how it happened I yeah. went to school to become an engineer, but I don't know why I chose that. And when I look back on, on and try and think about the reasons, I just grew up with parents that, that thought there was only three jobs in life. You're a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, and those are the only things you could do. And so I picked engineering just because it seemed the easiest one but I don't remember making it you know, an intentional decision. Um, and the reason I changed
0: my, my So they, they sound like Indian parents, by the way. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, yeah, I guess it's just like that generation of parent, period. Um, yeah, you need to be proud of your child and to be proud of your child, they need to be one of those three jobs because everybody knows what that is. The, the idea of saying you're a business person like that doesn't really make, it didn't compute. Um, but my first job as an engineer, <clears throat> I knew that I didn't want to be an engineer. And I just remember sitting in my little cube farm And I was doing automotive mechanical engineering so like big production lines and I had this this sort of thing wash over me where I thought this cannot be what it's like to work for the rest of your life and it's going to take 30 years before I can make any decisions and I would look at my boss and my boss's boss and the executives in the company I was part of and just no one was inspiring and I just couldn't see this world where I would just work for 35 years to be those people and, and not enjoy what I was doing. And so I knew on my first day of my first job that this was not for me. And it took me two years <clears throat> um, you know, to make that change. I wanted to leave the first day actually and my father convinced me to not. And, and I stayed for one year exactly and then I resigned from that job. And then I went to another engineering job and then I decided during that year that I would go do my MBA and that's how I ended up changing uh, into finance and it was the best decision of my life.
0: Started. And along the way, you know, the first say, seven, eight years of your career was not in technology, right? So it was in uh, life sciences. And uh, so tell us about that. And it's, it's, you know, pretty different in terms of domain. And what were, w- would you say that that's the role that really prepared you to be a CFO, you know, long term in technology companies? Compare and contrast for me, the experience yeah. of working in high growth <laughs> technology companies versus life sciences companies. And what was that experience like? <clears throat> yeah, I got, really, I got really lucky. So
1: I was, I was also trying to go to the Olympics during that time. And so I did the 96 Olympic trials, and then I was going for, for the 2000 Olympic trials. Um, and I went back to school in 99, finished my MBA in 2001, did not end up doing the 2000 trials. Um, but the, the tie-in to ending up in San Francisco is the guy that I sailed with, the reason we didn't end up doing the 2000 Olympic trials is he got into Stanford. And so he went to Stanford in, in uh, 99. Um, and so, you know, I had a great friend who was down in California and I always heard about obviously the dot-com boom, but I didn't really understand what that was and, and what it meant to be part of Silicon Valley back in 99, 2001. So in 2001, on my, my reading week break or the break you have, I don't know what it's called here, but that's what it's called there. I came down to visit my friend Lars, who's actually a venture investor now, and I was just blown away. I met all these folks at Stanford, all these people that had started companies, there was this buzz around. Valley, obviously, even though it was 2001 and things were not going as well as they were, but my eyes just opened up. I'm like, I have to be here. Like, this is where all the opportunity is and the things that I was feeling back in Canada and the reason I went back to school, I still didn't really know what I was going to do. And all of my my classmates were going through on-campus recruiting and joining various companies. And I didn't do any of that because none of it felt like the right thing. And as soon as I discovered Silicon Valley, I went back to uh, Ontario is where I'm from, I'm Canadian, finished my uh, you know last couple of months, put everything I owned on the street or sold it, I mean it's all student mm-hmm. stuff, didn't have any money <clears throat> and I got in my car and drove to California <clears throat> and I went across the border saying I was going on holiday and I remember they, the border uh, people made me prove I had enough money in my bank account to like even be traveling around for two weeks, it was this whole, whole thing and I couldn't really bring anything with me because I couldn't say I was going on a holiday and then have all my belongings with me. It wouldn't, it wouldn't compute. And I went down to um, to Redwood City and I lived on a sofa, actually, for the first six weeks um, of this you know, friend's student house and all these Stanford students. And I just got there and I thought, all right, I'm just going to find a startup. And so I just got up every day and started like looking for startups, which I don't really know. You know it wasn't as easy back then as it is now, because it's not like everyone had a website. So it was a lot harder to figure out, well, where are these startups? And uh, I got fortunate that I was at a barbecue at the actual house I was staying at. And an engineer mentioned, oh, I'm just part of this small company. There are seven people and we're looking for a business person. <clears throat> so I'm like, I'm a business person <laughs> because I just finished. And I had an MBA. And so I, I got, got dressed in my suit the next day, drove into Palo Alto and walked into the back of this company called Velocity 11, the life science company you're talking about. And I was just blown away. I mean, it's this big warehouse with seven or eight people working on these robotic systems and all wearing shorts and dogs running around and I'm wearing my suit. Uh, because I thought that's what you're supposed to wear. And anyways, I, I spoke with the uh, three guys, four guys that founded the company. And uh, maybe four weeks later, I joined it. But I didn't really think about the market opportunity. I didn't really think about how big could this be. I didn't really think about the competitive set. I just was living on a sofa and I wanted a job, you know, frankly, and it was a startup. And so it checked two boxes. One, I could move off the sofa and two, it was a startup. And over time, I have become much, much, much more thoughtful about the opportunities. And yeah, you know, looking back, what I do differently know, because I think all the pieces connect through to the uh, opportunities I've had since. And there were some great learnings there too, um, which I think, well, you know are, are things that I still think about today that I was fortunate that I had the opportunity to learn in my first role and I didn't come in as a CFO I came in as just a you know business person so I ran accounting and I don't have an accounting background <clears throat> so just all sorts of things that I had to learn but there's only a team of one it was me so I can kind of talk about how that progressed
0: Got it no I, so you, but you spent quite a bit of time with, Right, So you were there for, uh, you know, at least seven or eight years. And yep. was that because, uh, you know, you were quite early there and and did you really uh, figure out that that was maybe uh, the path that you wanted to be on and and you were, were you we already CFO? Or did you, you're the business guy, but right. did you take over as a CFO? Did you run finance over there and, you know, maybe spend a little bit of time telling us about uh, what that first experience was? Because obviously... After that, it was you know the DocuSigns of the world and the DoorDashes and the Gustos, and I think all of us are familiar with that. But this is interesting to me in terms of how it shaped uh, you know you as the CFO you are today, right?
1: Yeah, I got I got really lucky. You know, I worked with it, in my very first company. I already realized that I like things that are mission driven, and so I I already recognized that things have to have meaning for me to get excited. And are two things that stick out of Lost Eleven. One we talked about our culture as kick-ass culture. And so we just, that's how we thought of ourselves. We used the term kick-ass, perhaps we wouldn't be able to use that today, but it resonated with us then. And also we, we believed we were helping cure human disease. And so that was a high level mission that, that resonated with everybody that was part of that company. We were also bootstrapped in a way that is completely different to everything I've done since. We only raised 5 million. And so we raised $5 million. And I never thought about leaving until there was an exit. And the exit was that Agilent bought the company <clears throat> for like 110 million. So not a huge amount. And when you think about all the, the big sort of venture plays and, and companies I've been involved with since, but we only raised 5 million and we were profitable the entire time. And so it was a different sure. experience. And then I didn't become the CFO there until maybe three or four years in. And it was a whole process because I was I was not 30 yet. So I was in my late 20s. and you know, there was this sort of idea that we are as we were starting to grow and bringing in more seasoned execs that I was just 20 years younger than everybody else who was joining the company. And it just, it it just took a while to, I guess, for the, 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 the CEO and, and other founders and board to think that I, they should give me the opportunity. And it's, it's also funny looking back because this wasn't a huge company. I mean, this is a relatively small company, but there was still a lot of conversation around whether or not I, I should take this role or not and be the CFO. And I was fortunate that one of the people on my board was a guy named Dave and This sort of figures into some of the advice that I'll, that I'll give folks. Um, he was the CFO of Silicon Graphics. He was a CFO of Apple. He worked for president Clinton as a GSA administrator and the deputy secretary of commerce. So he was this really accomplished guy who was an angel investor in Velocity 11 and on our board. And I was fortunate enough to meet with him once a month for almost four and a half years for lunch at the same place called Chef Chews in Mountain View, which is, I guess it's the only place he ever wanted to go, I don't know. But that's where we went. And he just gave me a lot of advice around you know, who I was as, an, as a CFO, as, a, as an exec, um, what I needed to work on, what a great CFO is, things like this that I was just so lucky to have this, this great mentor take an interest in me and then he was the, uh, you know, supported me to eventually becoming the CFO and, and it was sort of without him. I don't know if it would have happened. And because that happened, it just set me on a path that I've only been in five startups and I've been the CFO of them all. But I joined the next four as the CFO versus um, going, going through, you know, to become the CFO. And he gave me advice that I still remember and I have, I really need to dig it up. He gave me uh, two sheets of paper that he wrote out attributes of a great CFO in his opinion, who Mike Dinsdale is, what Mike Dinsdale needs to work on. And one of them was executive presence. He's like, you you just want to go and you want to go fast and you think everyone's too slow and you think everyone's stupid basically um, because they're not moving as fast as you and you need to slow down. And part of the CFO job, and this is a big learning for me it's to make everybody else better. And I think that's something that everyone needs to, to learn that as a CFO, you're sort of an unequal peer in that you know what's going on in a way that no one else does because you have a view across the entire company. You have the ear of the CEO in a way that nobody else does. There's a trust that's there that's different um, because maybe you're talking about how you set targets or how you could push or you know various other things that those conversations that are happening between the CEO, CFO and the board, you have a relationship with the board independent of the CEO as well because the board wants to look to you to say, well, what's your actual take? Like, you know, I heard what the CEO said, but what's your take? They wanna you know, validate or verify. And so obviously you're aligned with, with the CEO, but they want your opinion. And so it's just a very unique position, but you can't lose sight of the fact that your other job is to make everybody else successful, give them access to information, help them synthesize whatever it is that's gonna make them successful. So that was a huge learning for me because I thought of it more as, oh, it's about me. And then I realized at a pretty young age, no, it's actually about you know, the, it's about the company performance and then it's about how you make everyone else successful and get everybody else you know, aligned and wanting you to be the CFO. And the other thing he told me that, I, that I'll always remember was to fly high and dive deep. And they just you know, in his words, but what, what that really means is that you can participate in strategic high level discussions, you can drive strategy, but you have to know the details inside and out better than anybody and you can't ever make mistakes. Of course we all make mistakes, but, but the idea is you need to know the details better than everybody else. And that's, you know, that's not simple. So you need to know the details better you need to prepare everybody else, that you also need to make sure that you can participate at a strategic level. Um, and so, you know, those were, I was just really fortunate to meet somebody like that. And then that sort of goes into, you know, the
0: career change when, when uh, Velocity 11 was sold. Got it. No, that's great. And so in those early years, Mike, as you were figuring out, hey, I want to be an operator, I want to be in startups, the CFO path, it looks like, was not obvious. It looks like you had a mentor who kind of coached you and guided you that, look, this could be the role that you have in impactful, meaningful companies. And was that when you figured out for yourself that, okay, the CFO is the role for me? Because you could have picked any operating role uh, you know, in, in companies, as they grew you could have been a COO or, or other kinds of roles like that. And can you yeah. think back to why you ultimately landed on the CFO track and then came to then DocuSign and then DoorDash and you made a career out of it? And uh, was that mainly based on the advice of this mentor or, or is there something else that you learned that made you feel like that is the right role to be in given the vantage point I will have inside of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was, I was trying to
0: figure it out because it, at that
1: time as well, I did my CFA uh, during those, you know, first six or seven years I was here, or last maybe the first three, so I did that, and then I was actually starting to do my CPA, and so I thought, all right, this is it. I'm going to get them all. I'm going to do my CFA, MBA, CPA. And There you go. Nothing will stop me. And as I started to dig in on the CPA side, I just realized that I just didn't have a passion to do that. Um, and so, I, I think I don't think I would have been a, a CFO if if I was working in more traditional companies. But high growth just meant that I could really be different. You can step out and, and one of the, the biggest skill sets, high growth CFOs need anyways, you got to raise money. And so you have to be, you kind of get to be a great salesperson for the company because that's what you're essentially doing is you're selling it to the investors and selling the dream. And I like that. I like also uh, inspiring people within companies. You know, the thing that we're doing matters and... So I, I love that part too. And I think I always liked that, just access to everything, to be honest. I always liked the idea that as a CFO, you have access to basically everything. And through that, you, know, you can have a bigger influence on the outcome of a company. And you know, it, I think the role evolved enough that it allowed people to be more aggressive in the role and you didn't have to be the traditional, okay, you're the no person or you're the you know, person in the corner or you're not even in the room which could happen potentially. Maybe not so much as a CFO and definitely not in high growth, but it could, you know, in more traditional operating companies where maybe the value of having a strategic thinker is not,
0: not so important. <clears throat> Gosh. So and it. Definitely, so- definitely helped to have him. <clears throat>
1: Excuse
0: me. That's awesome. So w- one of the things that a lot of people think about is that first CFO role, right? And so looking back now CFO of DocuSign, yeah, DocuSign is a very well known brand and, and you know, company today, but I guess about 10 years ago when you joined them, they weren't. Because if I look at based on what you're saying about the Velocity 11 having a $110 million exit, you know, by Silicon Valley standards, fairly uh, small. And do you think, what stage was DocuSign as a company at that stage, right? And uh, do you feel like uh, they were also at a stage where somebody with your background actually had a shot at getting that CFO role and allowed you to grow with that company. And you know, how did you think about getting that first break in a technology company that went on to become kind of a very meaningful uh, company? I mean, there was another step in there and it's, it's another
1: thing that it, it ties back to having a, a mentor as well. And so what I did in the break between Velocity 11 and, and uh, DocuSign, I went to a company called Lithium and that's where I changed. I took us maybe like four months off or so, and I started to realize when I looked at the exit that we had at Velocity 11, it was like two times revenue. We had 350 people, two times revenue. I mean, I thought, God, we worked our butts off for seven years, eight years, and we got two times revenue, and we really worked hard. We worked on the. We worked all weekends. We just worked our butts off, everybody. And then I just started thinking, well, this is crazy. I mean, there's outcomes that are 500 million or 700 million or a billion, and they don't work any harder. They just picked a better company and a better market and have a better multiple. And then I started thinking about what was changing in 2007. And, you know, SaaS started to emerge. Social was something that I believed in. The point being, I, I think it's important for everyone to step back and think about what are the big themes that are happening in the world? And then how do you position yourself there? So I went on that four or five months and learned everything possible about SaaS because I wasn't a SaaS CFO. I I did software RevRec. It was called 97.2 way back then. I don't even know what it's called now. But this was on-prem software and building hardware. And then these big systems that had to be recognized over complex RevRec rules. And I started just thinking about SaaS and how and on-prem, and it just made sense because we had such it was a huge pain for us to update systems. We had to send people to labs and all this infrastructure was ridiculous. And so i started thinking about SaaS. and so i i spent time with the people at bessemer uh this guy philippe and um uh what's his name uh byron wrote this five c's of SaaS, which kind of became this framework for everyone to think about SaaS. so i spent i just reached out to them and this is important i think for everybody it's just like reach out to people most people will be overjoyed to share their story and help you and then i also reached out to every single cfo i could think of in silicon valley and said, hi, I'm Mike. I just sold this, you've never heard of me. I sold this company of the last 11. You've never heard of that company either but I'd love to hear your story. And I did that with Graham Smith who was the CFO of Salesforce, Steve, who's still the CFO of LinkedIn and a bunch of others. Um, I don't know, probably like 20 people. And I became close with Steve and Graham actually. And they they stayed in my career the whole time and they became these huge supporters. And I went and met with them once a quarter for probably 10 years. Now I'm just friends with them. but they helped me because they were senior folks sitting in big, huge jobs, and I was blown away that they would all spend time with me. Everybody. I met Patrick, who's the CFO of Google, just by emailing him. He's like, "Sure," and I went and had lunch with him, and it it just blew me away. And so I learned that you know, and I this is advice for everybody: like, reach out to any. Like, no one reaches out to CFOs, so they're the easiest people to get to. They're people who are CFOs are like, "What? Someone cares about me? This is awesome." So I guarantee that anyone you reach out to will meet with you. And, and then you can just hear their story, get their advice. But just as importantly, in the background, all these folks started saying, yeah, you know, Mike's the guy, like, you know, and they would introduce me to investors and people they knew. And a warm investor from Graham Smith is pretty damn good, you know, compared to a lot of other ways so you could get to different investors. You know, and if these folks say, yeah, you know, this is, a, this is an up and coming superstar. And then you just kind of creates a little bit of a buzz around, around that. Plus I just learned everything possible on SaaS. And so I repositioned myself and said, no, I'm a SaaS CFO now. And there, you know, honestly, back then there really wasn't that many. So it wasn't that hard, I guess. And it was, it was unique too, because there wasn't that many and I just was fluent. But only from just doing research myself is the point. And Got I switched it. the game there and went into big venture. And so lithium, I raised a couple hundred million. I mean, uh, yeah, lithium and uh, over two years grew from like 40 to maybe 400 people. So it was a huge growth expansion. And then to go to DocuSign, which is kind of your question, you know, Lithium was seen as an A company. Benchmark was an investor. And I just stopped believing in it and just saw us losing deals to Facebook, actually, because we were trying to focus too much on marketing and and brand affinity instead of service, which is where the DNA of the company was. So kind of a strategic mistake there. And not not developing a relationship with Salesforce, which was ridiculous because I had the best in ever, which was Graham, which ends up coming back to help me at DocuSign, actually. But um, so, anyways, that company, the difference was I just believed as soon as I started to think about DocuSign and it was at that point, 40 people. And so, you know, to answer your question, would, would I have won without going to lithium for two years? No, I wouldn't have because the board was looking for someone that they believed that the idea had hit the right time in history. And I think this matters for all companies. Tom, who's the founder, started the company in 2001. So he was working on DocuSign for the same amount of time I was working on Lost 11 and went to lithium. Uh, And he was chugging away on on DocuSign, but it really didn't take off um, until 2010. And in 2010, the big changes really, it started to happen. The iPhone launched in 2007, Android 2008, and then the iPad in 2010. And then connectivity speeds and wireless just changed. And so all of a sudden you have great Wi-Fi at home, you have a tablet that looks like this, browsers and people are becoming more comfortable with browsers. So everything was starting to come together that in 2010 it was actually could be a real company. Before that, the three years before I joined, it did five million in revenue, flat. I think it even had a down here to like three and a half or four. So it's amazing that the company just kept going, to be honest. And it's amazing that Tom kept going, but he believed that there would be a world where everyone would be using the you know, DocuSign, why would anyone ever have a paper document period anywhere in the world? And when I got a cold call from uh, Diversa about DocuSign, a company of 40 people all in Seattle and they were looking for a been there, done that CFO. Like their their, their, their search was all around, let's go find someone who's, you know, everyone thinks they want someone who's taken a company public, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think we all kind of know the profile and I flew up to Seattle and just said to Tom and this guy, Pete, who's still on the board and they're both friends now, after all this, I'm like, you don't want that person. This is a company of 40 people. You want someone who's gonna run through a, you know, an effing wall and make this happen. You want someone who believes that everyone on the planet needs this and this will be using this. You, you don't need that, like you need some energy here. This is a company that's been chugging along for you know eight years. It's it's the right time in history. You need someone like me basically is what I said. and. Uh, You know and i guess they agreed and so that's how i ended up getting there by just stepping outside a little bit of the norm and just being so passionate about what they were doing and saying no
0: i believe in this thing like there's no question of course is a no-brainer because i really did look and i think that that's the interesting thing here is that this was a company that had been in the traditional silicon valley model is that if you've been around nine years and you've gotten to five million in revenue something is wrong with you, right? There is no product market fit. Like, what gave you the conviction that no, 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 like this is going to be a special company and I should go spend uh, you know, all of my energy on it. I mean, I didn't know it was going to be the winner because back
1: then we were competing as Ecosign, which was the, uh, Adobe bought, which is great, which we actually tried to buy as well um, in my first year. But I just, it just made sense to me that why in the heck would we have this paper document? It makes no sense. Like, what is a signature anyway it's just all these these concepts gelled with 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 how I thought the world would change and you know it's not like I came to it all on my own I mean I spent time with Tom and he had this vision but I just got it and I've always been good at once I start to believe in whatever it is in the vision then I can really get behind it and I think you know make selling it better which is probably one of my my best skill sets in terms of what I brought to the companies but it just makes sense I mean and 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 the thing that I like about you know all the the last three companies I've been part of it has application to every person on the planet basically doesn't mean that it will be in every country, but docuSign certainly you know it does have application to every single person to every single country anywhere on the planet, and it'll be around well after i'm I'm gone and you know my 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 kid will be using docuSign and it's become a verb. but I did the first presentation to the company of forty people in Seattle, and I remember flocking <laughs> But just before I was about to talk, you know, we didn't have a bathroom inside the office because there's you know a small number of people, everyone was in Seattle except for myself and the CEO. And uh the idea was to move the company to San Francisco, which ended up happening. But I went out to go to the bathroom and I came back in. And because it's a security company, you know, the, an engineer who was who was, you know, I was tailgating in, he's like, Whoa, who are you? And I go, i see a phone. he's like, I I don't know, I've never seen him, man. I'm sorry. And he wouldn't let me in, <laughs> which was awesome. <laughs> I wish I could remember his name, but but in that presentation, I re, I remember one of my slides where I had FedEx, Google, and then DocuSign, and I believed that we would be a verb, and one day people would
0: say DocuSign that, and I think it's happening. That's amazing. Yeah, great. no, it it has happened, and and uh, so a related question, you know, staying on the topic of kind of career paths, uh, that someone asked a question. I just pull it up right now, which is around the perennial question of. Uh, you know, should CFOs have the kind of background that you did, which uh, is more uh, strategic finance and, and uh, that side versus the accounting control kind of background and uh, audit and all of that, right? And, uh, and I think you and I have talked about this before. Maybe the best answer is it depends on the business model and things like that. But I still love to hear your thoughts and uh, what advice you give people generally. If somebody, you know, with uh, and an accounting and audit background comes up to you and says, "Hey, I'm working towards being a CFO. What advice would you give me? What would that be?"
1: Yeah, I think it, I think the answer is, and it's all Leah's. Just it does depend. It depends on the type of company and stage, and then it also, you know, I think we can all overcome our our skill set weaknesses by making sure we have strong people to augment that. You know, for all of us. I mean, it's the same for you, right? You you build out a, a management team of people that complement you. And complement each other. So I don't think there's this one size fits all um, by any stretch. And some businesses are more complicated. So if you look at Gusto, where we're you know moving tens of billions of dollars, there's there's strong, there's a strong operational component that must exist. And it's a highly regulated business with payroll and, and, and uh, benefits, and then now with banking. And so, you know, at some point you need somebody who is more like that. And so in, in terms of getting, you know, the first the first opportunity. That's a tricky one. I mean, I don't know if I'm the best on advice related to first opportunity because I've only worked as I've never worked for another CFO. And so I don't know what I don't know. And I probably missed a lot of things because I hadn't I probably learned a lot more just myself or just thought what it you know, did what I thought made sense. But I probably missed a lot of things. And so if I look back and, and think about how I would approach my career, if it didn't happen the way that it did, I think working with with a great CFO, maybe working with someone that augments your own skill set so that you can expand because if you work with someone who's just like you, well, maybe you're not going to learn as much. And and so, you know, being that other piece for someone who's different feels like a pretty good a pretty good way. If I think about Augusto as an example, Sean who's the controller, I mean, working with me, working with Sean, we're very different but very complementary and you know, both both have learned from one another and certainly at, at larger scale. I don't think of anyone who's part of my team as uh, reporting to me. I think of them as, you know, experts in what they do. And I just happen to be the one to bring it together. But they know more than me across the various pieces that they're managing. But to get the first one, I think I would I would look at, you know, first who and maybe work for somebody to gain that experience. Great company. I mean, coming from success always gives you an opportunity for better success. So, you know, I would think twice about going to a company that you didn't have conviction that it would be successful. So I'd really be thoughtful about, is it the right time in history for this company? Because I think that matters massively, you know, look at DocuSign, it was, you know, seven or eight years too early and, and it's just amazing and survived. But if it started at that same time, maybe it wouldn't have, who knows. But the point being the right time in history matters. Is it going to be a winner? And, and taking a less title at a winner is better than taking a big title at a, at a loser. Um, I think, because then you're not going to get the next tranche of opportunity. And the goal, I think, for everyone is that each successive opportunity is better than the last and the the set that you get to pick from changes. So, you know, if you're at a a DocuSign and you're, you know, number two, you're going to have great opportunities. Or if you're at a DoorDash or if you're at a Gusto, you're going to have great opportunities in A's instead of B's or C's. And that matters because a couple of B's or C's you can spend 10 years on a couple of those and not have you know financial success and certainly i think it doesn't help your career either so you know the scorecard around company and learning and then i think that gives you that opportunity to go go into something potentially smaller but it's it's an a opportunity and not a b or c and it, that just i can't state how much that matters because i think we all have you know lots of friends who are, who are in startups or join companies and they're just you know, they, they're, they don't seem to have great outcomes, but they work just as hard. And that goes back to my velocity 11 experience. We worked just as hard. We just didn't have a great opportunity and it wasn't an a company, but we didn't know that because we were stuck inside working hard. And, you know, we obviously believe and you like the people you work with. And so you stick it out. Um, so anyways, I think that's like one of the, the biggest things that I, I try and give people that ask me advice on just be really, really thoughtful about the company. And I think it's always better to take, you know, the, the, the second seat would be part of something great.
0: Got right. And so, you know, another thing that I noticed about your career seems to be like a very conscious choice is you enjoy working in private companies and when it's time to, for the whole public market thing, you're like, I'm out. I'm going to go pick the next uh, uh, enjoyable thing to go work on. So, tell me about that. Like, how, how do you think about, uh, you know, the private companies versus public companies and the change in kind of uh, ownership, responsibility, all of that for a CFO. How does the job change in your mind and what made you decide that I enjoy private, you know, working in private companies more than public companies?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's so interesting on that one. I didn't really think about that until you, you asked me about this as you and I were, were preparing. It, or maybe I just never wanted to admit it, that's, which could be the case too. You know? Sometimes you don't like to look at yourself and say, oh, yeah, that's the case. I think I just don't fit when it gets into, because of my, I guess, approach, and I can be pretty, I can be pretty aggressive. And I mean, aggressive, not aggressive towards people. But I mean, aggressive, because I really want to, I really love being in high growth, and love pushing. In um, that competitive spirit, just means and matters something to me. And I, as, as companies get bigger and get into the, you know, I don't know, three, 400 million and thousands of people, you then I think it goes back to you have to kind of be like you're supposed to be as a CFO, which means you're supposed to be as like the traditional way we think about CFOs and there's a lot more control and operations and all, honestly all the things I don't like to do. Uh, and it, it changes from being sort of this great evangelist, and certainly raising capital stays the same and, and that part doesn't change, but the expectations of how you're going to approach the role internally does and it becomes a much more operational role and then I don't like it and so yeah, I think that is kind of my skill set. It's to go from, you know, zero, 10, 50, whatever, to a couple thousand. And then as soon as it changes across and you're supposed to be playing your role only and going a lot deeper, it's like, all right, go find someone who's better than me. Um, And, you know, and that's worked well because it's not that it's been in a sort of a mercenary approach to building a portfolio of companies, but it's worked well for me that, Pass the baton to someone who's going to do a better job. I mean, when I left when I left DocuSign, it was worth about four billion, and now it's worth you know forty three. So the next group of people did a great job, <laughs> uh, and and neither one would have been successful without the other. Meaning the folks that took it from forty you know four to forty needed us to take it from when I joined it was fifty million. Um, it was only worth fifty million. Now yeah, I was doing revenue of like eight, um, you know, and now it's going to cross a billion. And so it's there's just the right person at the right time. And I think that's okay. And I never really wanted to admit that because then it felt to me like it would take away opportunity. So you certainly wouldn't position yourself as that. Meaning like, I don't think you'd go into a a role and say, yeah, you're probably gonna need someone else at about 500 people, (laughs) right? Um, But it was, I suppose it got longer each time, but then I also realized what I like.
0: So, you know, going to- Hopefully you held on to your stock even though you moved on from some of these uh, companies because yeah. they've all gone on to do like uh, ridiculously well. And that's great. So let's just quickly talk about a little bit about the management leadership uh, side of things. And uh, I want to make sure we have enough time for you know, questions from the uh, audience. Uh, you, you were talking about how so much is about you identifying your strengths and then surrounding yourself with people to fill those gaps, right? And, and, uh, and but along the way, You've been a, you know, international, internationally competitive sportsman. So did that leadership management skills, all of that come from that background? Were you always kind of naturally a good manager and a leader and good at selling and recruiting? And, or is that something you had to work at? And, and because not everybody who comes up that CFO path has those skills. And some people have to work harder at it than others. What was it for you? And, and uh, I also want to talk about mentorship a little bit, which you uh, Alluded to, but but let's talk about that. Uh, you know, leadership and management, and how you became good at that.
1: Yeah, I don't know 100. percent. I mean, I know that I learned when I was competing just to be very calm and um, to not get stressed, and so that's always been an attribute. And I don't, uh, you know, if I had a big presentation, I, I, I don't have trouble sleeping or in, nothing really phases me related to just stress of job. Um, and I also just like inspiring people. And I think that does come from, from sports and so on. So the idea of learning how to win because it's really hard to win in anything, it, that doesn't bother me. And then just you know inspiring people, I just all, I've just always liked that. And over the time, the last 20 years, I'd say when I was back in college, I probably would get a little hot if I had to do a, you know a presentation or something like that. Maybe all of us, I think at some point, but in the last 10 years, it's like zero, zero. I don't stress about it at all. In fact most of the time i don't really prepare um i mean obviously with numbers and so on but but it gets easier and that's the thing that i didn't realize and maybe for everybody it's about putting yourself in the right spot and i'm sure it's the same for you personally you're just saying your thoughts that becomes a lot easier when you just be yourself right and it's definitely easier you know for a founder ceo because it's your thing and you know you are yourself but as you you know get more seasoned in your career you just become more and more yourself and then it just becomes easier and easier and easier i think that's why you know some of these things become more second nature just because you're you um and now if you have to work on things we all do i mean what do i have to work on i had to work on making sure that i really spent the time to have the details you know like this and so yeah i would sit down and make sure i really knew the numbers inside and out and that was it. that was effort and so maybe you know for all of us we have different pieces that come naturally and we can all work on the other pieces that don't um, and become better and better at those and i think like putting yourself um into those uncomfortable positions is important so what i did at at gusto which i'd never done before and i think it was pretty successful i i gave everyone on the finance team the opportunity to do so i did i don't know quarterly updates four to six times a year well there's, there's only monthly updates, obviously not quarterly, there's only four, but, um, but I would do updates once a month, at Gusto. No one day, you're not a public on
0: this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: But I would do updates, you know, and I, I did that basically throughout my career. But what I did at Gusto is offered up, you know, four or six of those, to anyone on the team that wanted to present instead of me, because I thought, well, why do I need to present all the time? I should give other people an opportunity, like standing in front of 1200 people. I mean, zoom now, but and delivering the results, I mean, you need to take advantage of those opportunities. So my point is, whenever you see those, be the one to raise your hand and, uh, and take advantage of that. And it was amazing for me to see who would volunteer, you know, and, and more or less everybody did over time and everyone did a great job. But the point is people put themselves in a spot where they felt uncomfortable and standing in front of 200 people and, and, and being the person. And so I would sometimes join them and sometimes not, you know, to make them feel more comfortable. But the point being, Raise your hand whenever those opportunities come in whatever form they are. They're not always gonna be in, in the form of a presentation, but be the one to stand up and, I don't know, present at a board meeting or present at a, a management team meeting or present to the engineering team or whatever, whatever it is, just you know, take advantage of those opportunities.
0: No, hundred percent. right? Like it, that's been my big lesson also is that growth happens outside the zone of comfort. Growth never happens when you're kind of comfortable uh, you know, in in anything, and uh, but if you do it often enough, it starts to become second nature, right? Yeah. And uh, and you also don't feel like an imposter uh, in any given role, and uh, you get comfortable in your own shoes, and 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 that's awesome. So uh, I'd say you know, one one other thing on this that I think is important, and it's it's a it's again
1: it's a learning, and it goes back to I was fortunate at Velocity Eleven to understand that part of the CFO role is making all of your peers successful. I think that's the role of just the leader too. period it's, you don't need any uh, you need to get yourself into a spot where you don't need to take credit for anything. Basically your credit is, you have an amazing team and you highlight their work all the time. Like of course, no one takes credit for other people's work, but highlight everyone else's work and your whole job as a leader is to make everyone else successful. That's it. It's not about making yourself successful. And so it's giving everyone else opportunity. And by doing that, you also create a very strong team. And then your team becomes very loyal to you as well because you're always giving them opportunity. All Your whole job is about giving them opportunity, making them successful, highlighting their work um, and caring about you know their, their growth. And I, I wish I could track because I know others have where they would track where have all the people they've worked with ended up and who's done what. And I think Jeff Epstein did that. Um, I don't know if people know him or not. Um, the former CFO. He did Best on that, right? Yeah.
0: Former
1: yeah. and now at yeah. yeah, yeah, it's at Um, He's on the board of booking.com too, um, which was called Priceline back then. But, uh, anyways, he tracked this at one point. I saw him do a presentation where he went through like the stats of who's ended up where over time. But that is that is a measure of success, I think, uh, for any leader. It's certainly the, the, the companies that you've been part of and the stories behind those. But then it's all the people that, you know, the network of folks that you've been able to touch
0: or have worked with, which is great. And also, Speaking speaking of the importance of mentors, I hope everybody you know it, it's been amazing to hear how deliberate you you were in terms of uh, reaching out to people and seeking out mentors and making sure that you were building those networks and and the kind of doors that opened and the opportunities that that provided you. Of course, I think you have also just given uh, everybody permission to reach out to you and and uh, ask for your time to be, to be uh, ready for that, but. Uh, hopefully people have taken away the importance of kind of doing that too, right. That, you know, just assuming that the opportunities will come to you will just not work. Right. And, and you have to kind of put yourself out there and be ready to, you know, be ignored sometimes, or, or, uh, you know, not get those meetings and not get uh, some of those uh, opportunities uh, to spend time with folks. And, and that's okay. right? And and I think that's where also the salesman mindset comes in where yeah, you might send, uh, 50 emails out and get one meeting and and uh, great but if that one meeting opens the right doors that's still great right and so that's awesome and let also very quickly talk about you know the uh, relationship you know, of the finance team with the rest of the companies this is always something that I uh, uh, you know want to talk about in terms of uh, getting that right and making sure that finance is not relegated to the back office and things like that right and Uh, So it looks like you've always been the kind of CFO where you're going toe to toe with the rest of the team and you're growth oriented. You've been in high growth companies and, uh, you know, you haven't been more of this, uh, you know, back of the office operational kind of CFO. So that that maybe it's come a little more naturally to you uh, anyway. But, you know, what is what is your advice generally to people about making sure that they have that seat at the table and they're not relegated to a you go to the numbers, you go close the books. Yeah. And then let me run the business kind of uh, mindset, right?
1: Yeah. And I think this goes into you know, function because it's, it's a little bit harder from the accounting side because generally you're, you're reporting on results versus planning, which, you know, so it's easier on the finance side to engage in the business. And I'd say the thing that I've noticed over time that's the watch out for folks on the more on the accounting side is just like really engage in the business and how it works in the customer, like really understand that. And don't think your job is just about reporting the past accurately, which, you know, it is. But participate in, in other pieces. And I think there's there's more opportunity than than people understand to join other types of meetings. So we did we started to do that at Gusto as well, where we had the accounting team joining some of the planning meetings. And you know, as an example, Sean, who I mentioned, you know, he would sit in on, on, on different meetings, like some of our metric reviews and things like this. So started to really engage more in the forward-facing business, and that's important. There's also an opportunity and it doesn't have to be outside mentors. I mean, reach out to folks in sales or marketing or whatever and just meet and try and understand their perspective on the business. I don't think there's anyone who would ever say no to a meeting from somebody to help them you know, grow. Everyone will say yes. But I, I also think that's important. It goes to your question around, you know, how do you start to make the function relevant? Well, you make the function relevant by understanding the pains of others that you're helping uh, and understanding the business, understanding the customer, understanding competitors—like spend time understanding the business you're in. Because I've also seen where it's it, this is people in all functions, by the way, not just in finance or accounting, where they they get so detached from what the actual company's doing, they don't have any, they don't really understand what would move the needle. So I think you really want to do that, you know, reach out to the CEO and say, Hey, could you just, I just want to spend like half an hour with you. And then after you get that one, you say, I think I could do this once a quarter or something like that, or, you know, not something that's so much time, but enough. And I I don't think you would say no to anyone in in your company. Of course not, because you would be overjoyed that people really wanted to engage in how to drive the company. So yep that's my advice it's really engage in the forward-facing business and understand what the company actually does and who the customers are and, and start thinking about how you know you can make the company better
0: got it awesome so i, I have one more question for you but before that if, if uh, any of you in the audience have questions there's a q a button at the bottom of uh, the zoom window please go ahead and put your question in there uh i will come back to it in about a minute and uh, so uh, Mike, let's let's do the quick uh, how the job has changed, right? So let's look back a bit. You know, you've been doing this for about 20 years now. And uh, has anything changed from your perspective in terms of how modern companies operate? You've been in SaaS for almost a dozen years now. And that has almost become a science now in terms of how you run uh, SaaS businesses, right? And so what do you think has changed over the last, uh, say, 12 to 15 years in terms of the job of the cfo and if you then looking forward if you had some advice for people around looking around the corner people who are up for that role in the next 5 years 10 years that mm-hmm. kind of time frame what trends are you seeing you talked about how important it is to pick the right opportunities in and, and kind of uh, go where the puck is going right and so what would your uh, kind of any insights be on that one
1: yeah i mean i think the the scope of the function can be you know can be a, can, they can be set up in a bunch of different ways. So a lot of times when companies are smaller, the CFO might have HR, legal, you know, facilities and so on. In a way, it has all the administrative stuff that, that no one else wants. Not that HR is in that bucket, but but the or or people teams, but but some of the others are a little bit. You know, it's kind of the you know administrative stuff. Um, I, I would say, and then that changes as companies get bigger and more specialized. But the thing that I've always had is I've always had corp dev and I've always had, not always, but a lot of times BD as well. So I wanted to have pieces where I actually was driving the business as well as, as the other more traditional finance and accounting pieces. So there's, I think there's some changes there. High growth, definitely you want forward facing, understand the business and drive the business and so on. But the, the, the role of the finance person has probably changed the most. And that's just all around being a more strategic full stack person and less around uh, fp and in a traditional sense, which is just really around planning and budget management. So that part just changed completely uh, over the last 10 years. But then the businesses that you're in have a big impact on, on profile and, and scope. So if I look at DocuSign had really all three, meaning it had enterprise, mid-market, and then online essentially, so e-commerce. But really we weren't experts at anything but direct. And so, you know, we we weren't as data-driven as say, when I went to DoorDash, very data-driven, because now you're you're looking at uh, an incredibly operationally intense business, which is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, multi-geography, all sorts of different markets and very data-driven because unit economics are tight. And so you have to be right on the supply and demand side uh, across all these different geos and factors. And, you know, it snows or it rains or it's hot changes the variable. So that was a very data intensive business. And so the the role there was building out data science as well um, and and deep analytics. And then the same at Gusto really, there was a lot of um, there did have um, business intelligence, didn't have data science. We call data science honorary, but the point is trying to integrate all the data sources into how we build models and and thought about the business. And then there was a huge operating component around regulatory and so on. So legal was part of the team too but also so is BD and Corp Dev. And so I guess out of all that, I mean, my, my kind of advice, and it goes to the same, it's to understand the business, but then it gives you the opportunity, I think, to have some of the more uh, forward-facing functions that can, that can drive and influence the business and driving some of those strategies. But there's no question, it's just data-driven is, is the kind of theme that, that's changed. And I'd say that the finance role has become much more full stack and the expectation or the opportunity is you can be strategic and drive the business unit you're working with or the company, if it's a smaller company. But as companies get larger, you know, have finance people we'll focused on different parts of the business, but you can drive it. And I think you can have a voice in that conversation in a way that maybe 10 years you couldn't, which is way better, way better. And I think you're expected Got to it. give valuable insights to drive the business, not just
0: say, here's the numbers. Got it. That's great. So before I jump into questions, I'm going to do something slightly different this time for those who, you know, joined these interviews in the past, which is, I'm going to ask you a few questions where you should answer them in less than 30 seconds. You know, the smaller the, uh, and, and the answer, the better. Let's start with what you're really experienced with. What are the best and worst things about working at, you know, one awesome thing, one terrible thing about working at fast growing uh, startups? Well, the best thing is you can influence the outcome and drive the business. The
1: worst thing is when it starts to get bigger and you have to convince more people, <laughs> to be honest. but I, I, Every you know, problem is a people problem, right? Yeah. I mean, I just love the energy of, of startups and, and fast paced businesses. And I think I would, you know, I would never join something that wasn't like that. Just wouldn't get me up in the morning. So I think the energy, so, the energy is best.
0: That's, that's great. So, among all of the people you have managed in the last 20 years, who do you think is going to become the CFO of a major company first? Well, I mean, I'm going to go with the most relevant because
1: when I was at DocuSign, I worked with someone who's actually retired, if you can believe it. He was the head of finance. He, was at a, he went to Fastly after. I think he never had aspirations to be, uh, to be the CFO. I worked with an amazing person also chief accounting officer at DocuSign who's still there, Vivian. Um, we became great friends too, but I don't think she wants to be a Seattle either. So there's like folks that, that go down that path and then they, they don't necessarily want to, but I'd say at, at Gusto currently, I mean, uh, Andy, if anyone's ever met Andy Augusto is a, you know, a superstar beyond superstar. Uh, and then I'd say on the team, um, you know, there now, you know, I think Sean too. I mean, so I, I'd say in the team I've, I just had it's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of folks, but probably uh, Rohit, Jeff and Chris,
0: are all kind of okay, against. so Mike, you have hired way too many good people.
1: <laughs> it no. looks no. like
0: there are a lot of people <laughs> who are going to be yeah, CFOs, which is good. I guess you asked for one, and, I uh, five, but yeah, okay. Awesome, last one. So knowing everything you know now, right? You, you aspire to be an Olympic athlete, right? So knowing everything you know now, would you rather have been an Olympic medal winning athlete or do what you've done you know, over the last uh, 15, 20 years? one million percent what
1: I've done over the last 20 years. I, I think having, having an Olympic medal sitting on the, in a box somewhere
0: wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't have been uh, the same fulfilling experience. So no question. No question. Got it. Okay. No, that, that, I thought that would have been a tougher answer for you, but it looks like uh, that was an easy answer, but great. So now quickly jumping into these audience questions. Uh, let's start about culture, right? Finance and accounting team culture. There's a question about does that look different than the overall company culture? And what have you done to establish a good culture in, in finance and accounting teams?
1: I mean, I, no, I don't think it, I think it all has to be lined up obviously, um, meaning it all has to cascade from company culture. And then, you know, everyone needs to, to drive that as well. But I've always believed we should have fun too. I mean, I believe in having fun. We all have to be at work for, you know, lots of hours every day. And I feel like having fun and letting people be themselves and working hard, but in in finance accounting functions, you have to drive you know excellence in a slightly different way. We just can't we can't make mistakes um, because that just erodes our credibility. And so there has to be a different level of excellence there. But outside that, I think it's 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 fun development. I focused a lot on on, on rise at Gusto as well. Like I really care about the quality um, and making sure everyone has opportunity. Uh, you know. I can expand on it. But one of the things I did is I brought in, we allowed anyone to come to our direct team meeting twice a month, anybody who wanted to come could, could raise their hand. So anyone in the team could come to my management team meeting, basically, uh, two of the four meetings per month. And I thought that just gave people an opportunity to see how boring it was, to be honest, because you know, as companies get bigger, most of the direct uh, leadership meetings are administrative. <laughs> but, but anyways, Things like that. I really wanted to drive more growth opportunities. I had everyone do development plans and things like this as well, which is different from the rest of
0: company. Got it. That's great. And uh, I know Laura put up the question, and and uh, you know I forgot to ask it. If you're interested in learning more about Airbase, please you uh, know answer that question uh, if you got a chance. Awesome. So go- going on with, with the questions, I think Jonathan is asking about setting the right expectations with board members and VCs as you are getting better, uh, you know, learning about fast metrics, or just in learning about the business in general, like how did you set those expectations before you became an expert? And what do you think is the right way to do that? Because nobody comes in as an expert, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think at the board level, you want to give a relatively small number of metrics. Um, I'm on a couple of boards too, and I'd say as companies get bigger, they give less. At the beginning, companies give a lot more. But it's, it's, you know, at the end of the day, like what are the actual variables that matter and drive the business? And that's really all you need to focus on. And I think as boards start to trust teams, then obviously they wanna see less because they don't need to verify in the same way. But it's, I think it's highlighting the key variables and how they're trending and changing over time. And that's really what matters because boards aren't gonna be able to get into the super details of, of how businesses run. But your, your skill would be to, to, as I say, pull out the things that matter and then setting expectations, I mean, I think it depends on on stage of company financing, when the next financing is, and if it's a stretch or not. As When companies are younger, I'm totally OK with saying, hey, yeah, we missed by 10%, but we set such a crazy target. Like, OK, as companies get bigger, then the expectation is you don't miss. And so you set lower targets, so you don't miss. And you manage in a different way. But I, I've kind of personally always been OK with a shooting for, for the most aggressive and, and getting as close as you can. Um, but again, you know, changes in, t- in terms of scaled company and expectation and, you know, vet, uh, as investors change and become more public focused, then, you know, you'd want to never miss. So I think that's kind of how I've approached that.
0: That's awesome. And so I will uh, you know, end with uh, a very relevant uh, question to what you talked about, which is you talked about picking winners. You talked about, hey spend a lot of time, be deliberate, be thoughtful about taking the right opportunities in the right business, because that has kind of an outsized impact on the career trajectory and and financial outcomes and all of that, right? And what's your approach to picking those winners, Mm -hmm. right? So, for example, were you close with uh, VCs, which gave you an inside kind of track into how they were thinking about markets and opportunities? Or did you read and research? And how did you go about building conviction that, you know, for example, a DocuSign or a DoorDash or a Gusto, what kind of the right horses to bet on that were meaningful, impactful uh, companies? Yeah, I mean, like my, my own intuition for sure.
1: But then, yeah, research and then I think talking to people, you know, and, and, and spend more time digging in with the company and talk. And like why, this, why does whomever it is in the company think this is going to be successful? Because it's so easy for people to, um, you know, drink their own Kool-Aid for sure. But I think doing your own research, thinking about how the world's changing, talking to as many people as you can, but really that, that it matters so much to understand it. I've also just picked things that make sense to me. Like, I don't think I would have, you know, pick big thematic things that make sense versus a security company. I mean, I don't know if it's going to be a winner or not because I don't know, but I do know that the world's changing and people want their food delivered. Like this makes sense to me and it helps restaurants and unit economics are good and blah, blah, blah. It's just, so either go that route where it's such a big problem that it just, Everyone can understand it makes sense. But then the trick is seeing it before everyone knows. But I think it's just it's all of the above. But the point is mostly just spend time being thoughtful about it uh, in, in any way you can.
0: Got it. Mike. This was uh fantastic. We are at the i know we could keep going for a lot longer, but I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure a lot of the audience did. Uh, and Laura has gone ahead and, and shared your <laughs> LinkedIn profile. I'm sure people will find it themselves. And, and so uh, you should expect connections and hopefully you'll get to connect with some of the folks Absolutely. who attended today. And uh, thank you once again for joining us and have a good uh, rest of the day. All right. You too. Everyone feel free to reach out.
1: Serious offer. All right. Have a great holiday
0: season, everybody. And thank you very much.
1: Yes. Cheers. Bye.